Well, good morning again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I had the recent privilege of attending a spectacle that is my wife's 30th high school reunion. And it was, uh, I recommend an experience like this. Uh, Go with somebody that everybody knows, and then you just sort of get to watch everybody else. That They don't know you, so you just get to observe, and and you see how people interact. And they don't know you, so they don't talk to you, and you just get to watch. And it was great. And, And in that experience, there were, there were two things that come out of it that relate to what we're talking about today. And the first was me just watching people. And you, you kind of got a sense, you could probably guess who the loud people were 30 years ago, because they're st- still loud. And there are, there are some haircuts that just still endure. It's, it's remarkable in that way. Um, and and the, the people that might have been maybe really awkward or uncomfortable uh, then are maybe less so now. They've just had more years to kind of work stuff out, and it's been great. But you realize that some things have shifted, that, that those that were maybe uh, very outspoken are now maybe a little bit more measured, and those that maybe were not as confident are now more confident. And, and then there are those that are like that guy in Napoleon Dynamite who thinks his best years were in the 1980s, um, just can't shake that feeling like it's always in the past, but man, those were the days. And you sit there and you see all of these people in different worlds and, and different frames, and you realize there is something that happens in both a setting like that and in every group people get sorted into categories. And there are people that were the, shall we say, the in crowd. And there were people that were sort of the not out crowd. And, and depending on what category you got shunted into, you, you had a different experience. There was a treatment issue that came along with whatever category you found yourself in, whether you had anything to do with it or not. That was one experience I had from the weekend. The other one was sitting down with a dear friend of my wife, which I thought was a great delight because I got to know more of my wife because I got to know part of him. He got to share with me parts of her life. And we had a long, leisurely lunch, the three of us. And he was very frank about what his life has been like since he left high school. He, my wife had been a youth minister at a church in, in, in Columbia, and, and after she left to go to Dallas um, to go to seminary, he takes her place. And so he's a youth minister there, and then he ends up being a youth minister in Georgia and elsewhere. But But then he got frank, and he said uh, life sort of imploded for him and his family, and he had to take responsibility for some of his family members to a degree he never would have dreamt. But something kind of shifted in his own heart about the faith community in which he had been reared. And when he would interact with them as he got older, he realized that something had shifted in them, that that certain ideas and notions and priorities had kind of risen higher and had begun to overshadow some of the more foundational fundamental aspects of what it meant to be a Christian. And, and a lot of those people were beginning to, to talk about those who were different from them, uh, not just as distinct, but, but to speak of them in a very disparaging way, as, as just them. And the quality of the community that had given him so much support and love and and encouragement in his time had shifted for him, and now that community was no longer, he couldn't go back. The quality of the community had changed. And it was sobering for him, and he had not been back to church in 15 years. And so it was a great privilege and delight just to hear him tell his story straight up, and for us to just to listen and, and go, wow, I think I get it a little. And those two experiences that I did not solicit and I did not expect have a lot to do with what we're talking about this morning. 
We're in a a new book as of a few weeks ago. We're listening to the letter that James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote. Before James ever spoke of his half-brother as the Lord, he thought of his half-brother as a nut, as practically insane. He doubted him. And James, who becomes a leader of the church following Jesus' ascension, he knows very well what it's like to become part of a community that the rest of the world would rather be glad that you were rid of it. Sound familiar? That's James' experience. That's, that's James' little story in miniature. And, and thus far, we've heard him talk about how the life of faith is, is full of, of danger and travail, and you will be in midst of moments that are soul-wrenching and doubt-producing, and you don't know what to do then. And he talks about that. And if you were here a few weeks ago, he, he talked about how we're supposed to think of God in the midst of those trials and the temptations. And, and last week, you heard Ben preach the passage where James gets down to brass tacks about what is, what is that true, pure, beautiful religion? When most people think of religion as just this awful, threadbare, obsolete, awful thing. And what you were heard hinted of last week, you're going to hear in full focus today, because at this point in the letter, James is going to shift his focus. He's spoken very clearly about the life of everyday faith is in fact an individual act, But what you're going to hear today is to say that it is very much a community sport. That there is no walking by faith without help, without community. Which may be the hardest part about faith. Because to borrow a line from that French philosopher John Paul Sartre, hell, oftentimes, is other people. And you know that. Because sometimes you felt that. Sometimes you are that. You misunderstand, you besmirch, you make people feel uncomfortable, you diminish, whatever it might be. Community is hard, it's messy, it's, it's gross sometimes, and it makes you want to quit. And, and even in moments like that where you feel like, I'm going to keep others at, 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 at arm's length, or I'm going to avoid them altogether, James is saying you don't have the luxury. Faith is implicitly a community effort. The problem is, though, that this community is out to have a certain quality. And James is riding into a situation in which those early churches, those fledgling churches, are beginning to give off a quality that is very off-putting and very contrary to what it means to believe that Jesus is Lord. And that quality that's afflicting those churches in the first century is the same quality that can afflict every single church since that time. And it is something that we are all just as prone to. Because it is born of something that is as ancient as humanity and is as contemporary as the front page on today's Asheville Times. And it has everything to do with the quality of the community that's here or anywhere. And so what James is out to do is to break it down into two things. Not this, but that. Not this, but that. What is the this? What is the that? That is our burden. But it comes down in large part to the way in which one gets shunted into categories and how those categories oftentimes yield a very different form of favor or treatment. If you're able to stand, we're going to read from James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. James 2, starting in verse 1. 
my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the straightforward word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Not this, but that. What's the this that we're not to do, and why is that a problem? The problem that is facing this early church is, as I said, a problem that will face any church. And that church, or that problem, comes down to what you heard in verse 1. Do not show partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The word partiality, it comes out of the context of the courtroom. It is a judicial cast to it. It speaks of justice in a certain way. In other translations of the Bible that you may have in here today, it is otherwise translated as the word favoritism, showing favor to some and not to others equally. Um, Kids, um, you know what I'm talking about, even if you don't ever use the word partiality. And the way it um, shows up in your world is that it can, it can split in one of two ways. You can either be a suck-up or you can diss people. You, you can suck up to the people that you think are important. You do everything you can for them because like, they're the important ones and you suck up to them. You brown-nosing, whatever you want to call it. And then those that like, nobody talks about and nobody talks to and nobody sits with at lunch, what do you do? You diss them. Like, no, that's partiality. And we all get it. And it's, it's, it's a different treatment among folks on the basis of, of, as I said earlier, these categories that we find ourselves in, that we, we put ourselves in or we put our in. Um, it might be a really interesting experience for those of you that are on campus on a given week. You might just sort of, in the lunchroom or wherever, just sort of scan the campus and, and just, you know, notice the ways in which people exist in different categories. You know, the more popular, the less popular, the least popular, and, and then See if they have different treatment assigned to them. And then ask yourself, why are they getting different treatment? What's up with that? Where does that come from? It happens everywhere. 
And if I might unpack it in a perhaps a little bit more um, vivid way, you don't have to go any further than Dr. Seuss to see what it's like for partiality to reign. So, roll camera. Now the star-bellied Sneetches had bellies with stars. But the plain-bellied Sneetches had none upon Mars. No stars on their bellies. No stars upon Mars. Now those stars weren't so big. They were really quite small. You would think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. They'd have nothing to do with a plain belly sort. Ronald, remember, when you are out walking, you walk past a snitch of that type without talking. Keep your snoot in the air and remember to snort. We have no truck whatever with the plain bellied sort. When the Starbelly Sneetches had Frankfurter roasts, or picnics, or parties, or marshmallow toasts, they never invited the Plainbelly Sneetches. They left them out cold in the dark of the beaches. They kept them away, never let them come near. That's how they treated them year after year. Oh boy, what am I do? Yeah, it's kids, but you get it, right? It happens everywhere. That kind of assigning of status on the basis of measurements or indices that nobody told you what those were until maybe earlier. Or maybe you really learned early and you felt like the rest of your life was dedicated towards staying in a particular category. On campus, it can be on the basis of uh, whether you're athletic or whether you're intelligent or uh, whether you drive a nice car or how far you've gotten in Fortnite. Um, cultural idiom, sorry. Um, it's a video game. And that, those, those distinctiveness, those distinctions, they, they play out in any number of ways, but you leave campus and, and, then, and then the measurements and the differences can get even can get even wilder because then you start making distinctions on the basis of ethnicity or on the basis of education or on the basis of how many bullet points there are on your resume. All of those things, you know, they play out and it's, it's not as if uh, James is, is, is railing on the idea that, that certain experiences are, are not ought to uh, play itself out in terms of what you do or or, or the roles that you have, or the responsibilities that you have. He's talking about a kind of respect and a dignity that partiality will not acknowledge. And he's saying that's the problem. These, these unimportant distinctions become a reason for distinction that leads to a difference in treatment, a difference in respect. And James is saying that that partiality neither fits nor flies with what it means to walk in the lordship of Jesus. It is as ridiculous as a sight for a bride in her dress to be shoveling out a horse's stall. You, you just don't put those two worlds together in the same image. It's the same way with acting with partiality as one who calls upon the Lord. 
Now, these churches that James is writing his letter to, the, the distinctions that are being made and the treatment that is in accordance with those distinctions, it's apparently not so much to do with ethnicity or about education. It's, it's falling down to economics. And in that situation, apparently, um, there are two kinds of people that are coming into their assemblies in these fledgling churches that would uh, now be in what we know as Syria. Uh, there were those that were the haves. They had a lot, and apparently they were glad for everybody to know that they had a lot. Uh, there was bling on their finger. Uh, they were dressed tri-chic, and they got a certain kind of treatment. And then there were those that walked into their assemblies who had perhaps nothing but the shirt on their back and yet smelled like everything that they'd ever touched. And in that setting, James is hearing, either anecdotally or often, that something was up. And that these churches were beginning to look at those who had, those with stuff, and saying, hey, you chief, sit right here, man, my seat, take it. And to those that had not, they would say, you, rabble, um, you know, there's overflow sitting over in the annex. Uh, You know, maybe you can check it out by close circuit. James is saying that that kind of treatment, it's more than just treatment. It's more than just being rude. It's a justice issue. You are acting unjustly to act with partiality. And we hear that really stark contrast in treatment in that early church in, in, in Syria, and we think, wow, yeah, they really stepped in it there. And then we have to pause and go, um, would we respond any differently? I mean, look, we're smack dab in the middle of Mills River, and we're pretty far from most places of poverty, essentially. Um, we are a long way um, from Haywood Street, and um, where a lot of destitute homeless people are looking to huddle together to find refuge. We're, we're essentially far from there. They're, they're almost like in another continent from our point of view unless we take measures to do that. And so the question is, would we respond any differently if those that didn't look like us, didn't smell like us, didn't act like us, didn't know the words that we did, would, how would we respond? But why does that matter? Like, don't people of great accomplishment deserve greater esteem? And, and don't those who are down and out, haven't they kind of made a bunch of uh, dumb choices that requires that we don't listen to them as much or as steadily or as heavily like isn't that pretty natural why is James so exercised about this why is it so ridiculous to proclaim Jesus as Lord and then turn around and either suck up to some or diss others he gives us three reasons why it doesn't fit and why it is ridiculous and the first reason is this God doesn't roll that way and never has And you heard that put pretty succinctly in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You mean God has an interest in those who have nothing and in fact has helped them to see that their, their, their material destitution maybe is actually provides them a window into their real spiritual condition and that's why they need him? Some of those who have the most clear faith, clear-minded, clear-eyed faith, are those that have absolutely nothing else to turn to for props. God has worked that way. He has regard for them. He doesn't play favorites on the basis of those standards that we 
like to apply, those categories that we like to shunt people into. In fact, he has special regard for those who make no list of distinction. And you heard that from the very top of our worship service from Psalm 82. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's not ambiguous. That's straight-eyed, clear regard. And, you know, it's not going to be long before we're in Advent. And we're at least going to hear at least one time Mary's song of praise shortly after she's been told that she's going to give birth to Jesus. And there in that canticle of praise, which we know as the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, she sings, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. That regard is evident from the very first moment Jesus is conceived in her womb, such that even later, three chapters, when Jesus is full grown and is given one of his first sermons, the sermon that that almost gets him run out of the rail and thrown off a cliff, Jesus says straight up, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to to proclaim good news to whom? To the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to who? To the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty, those who were oppressed to proclaim the year the Lord's favor. At the heart of God is the complete absence of partiality based on the way humans like to make distinctions. That's the first reason partiality doesn't fit, doesn't fly, and it's ridiculous. But the second reason is because to partake of it makes you a fool for trying. And I I take that sort of um, inferentially from what he says, sort of as he's scratching his head in verse 6 and 7, you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And here we're getting into the backstory that James is writing into. He didn't just sort of sit down and say, I think I'll write a letter. He's, he's writing into a condition. And the condition of those early churches is that it's these are jews who have become christians and so they're jewish christians and as you've heard me say before for them to make that call they are now alienated from their jewish brethren i'm sorry you you believe what you believe jesus is what you believe he is god you're a blasphemer you've just alienated yourself from those who are jewish and if you're a jewish christian and you're saying jesus is lord but not caesar is lord well, then all your pagan Roman friends are going, you better keep your voice down, man. That's, like, that's traitorous. These are people without a country. These are people without a people except themselves. And so now there are those who have means, who have holdings, who realize, you folks have no social capital. I can oppress you to my heart's desire. But these folks who have means are still a little bit intrigued by this Christian Jewish assembly. So they start coming and James, again, is scratching his head going, you want to suck up to the very people that want to take you to the cleaners? Really? Why would you do that? You know what they'll do behind your back. You want to treat them like royalty, but there in the back of their minds, they're going to think of you as the great unwashed. Now, what is that for us? Here's the thing about those who thrive on, on being admired, those who who love being sucked up to. Um, They are glad to receive admiration in a large part. 
but they are just as fine with ignoring you or writing you off. Now, kids, um, being popular isn't necessarily bad. You can be popular for all sorts of good reasons. You can be popular for being kind. You can be popular for being good. You can be popular for all sorts of things that we would consider rightly virtuous. It's fine. But there is a kind of popularity. There is a version of popularity that they love being sucked up to. But as soon as you turn your back, they will mock you. They might even mock you to your face, which makes you a fool for sucking up to them. Because what you seek from them, they will not give. And so, yes, partiality, pandering, sucking up, dissing, it's, it's not the way God rules. You're a fool for trying, but most of all, and perhaps most desperately of all, it is as far from what it means to follow God as possible. It is diametrically opposed to his heart. And you hear that in rather stark terms from what James says in verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You heard in our New Testament reading what happens when that guy walks up to Jesus and says, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus rattles off a bunch of the commandments, right? But he ends that commandment with saying, you will love your neighbor as yourself. And he's out to say, loving God and loving neighbor are distinct but inseparable acts. And your neighbor is anybody. Partiality, therefore, defies what it means to know God, what it means to love God, which makes partiality this really nutso thing. Nutso in this sense. Not only is dissing people that are not like you not the way you'd want to be treated. Nobody wants to be dissed. So why you would diss anybody who is different or, or, or in ways that you would disrespect them, it, you wouldn't want to be treated like that. But, but here's the flip side of it. Sucking up or pandering to those that you think are important, you, in some ways you convince yourself that that's a form of love. And you know what? It is. Self-love. It's not about them. You're trying to get something from them, and that's why you're pandering to them. That's why you're sucking up to them. You, you think it's kindness, but really it's this calculated effort to get something from them. Real love, the mark of true love, is to act in a way that has no thought of getting anything in return. And what better way to practice that art of loving than with those who really can give you nothing in return in which you act in an impartial way. You may remember from a couple weeks ago how we talked about the very nature of God as a gift giver. But his gift giving is very unique and in a lot of ways different from how you and I and how history has judged what gift giving is. God doesn't give gifts in order to get something from us because he doesn't need us. He only loves us. There is not some calculated attempt on his part to act in a way so that we'll return the favor. He just gives. He just loves. That's his nature. And therefore, partiality, whether dismissing those that you're supposed to properly be loving or, or catering to those as an act of self-love, it's just a step away from his heart. 
which is another way of saying sin, which is another way of saying it's patently unjust. Not this. Not partiality. Not sucking up to those who you think are important and dissing those you think are low on the food chain. But what then is its alternative? If not this, then what? Let's talk about that. Not this. Let's talk about that. And that is what you find in the last two verses of the passage. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Just two verses. You get the quality of the community outlined, that that quality that kind of naturally occurs in a community where everyday faith is on tap. But you also get the power from which that quality might come. The quality itself, what it looks like, and the power from which that quality emerges. And what is that? If not partiality, what are you supposed to do? Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. That is, whether it is to poor or to rich, whether to popular or unpopular, whether to white or black, whether to male or female, whether to slave or free, whether to refined or simple, you speak and act with them in mind in that moment, but with a view to a later day. You act properly and presently in the present, but with a view to a future. You act justly towards whomever you encounter on the basis of a final reckoning. And there's a lot of people in this room right now that are feeling very uncomfortable. And maybe I am too. Because we just heard the word judgment. And we think, wait a minute. (laughs) What? What about the grace of God? I believe in that. What, what, didn't, didn't Paul say something? Didn't, didn't Jesus say? Shh. Just for a second. Does Paul believe in the grace of God? Did Jesus exhibit the grace of God? Is Jesus the grace of God? Through and through. Unequivocally. The first four months of this calendar year, we listened to four months of Paul talking to that church in Galatia where he said, You belong to God on the basis of grace, period, full stop. But Paul writes another letter. He writes a letter to the church at Corinth. And in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, he says this, We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. What? We make it our aim to please him? Sure. If you are delighted to know that he has made you a son or a daughter, then you will, just be, you will be just as delighted to act more like the father who called you out of darkness. And yes, there is a time where we shall see him face to face, and that day is called judgment. And yes, Jesus says in John 14, straight up in so many words, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. Both Paul and Jesus are there to say that there is a way that derives from knowing what God has done for you. There is an ethic that comes from knowing what God has done for you, including loving your neighbor as yourself. And right now, a lot of you might be thinking that the way you're supposed to love is kind of like those very sad images that you've had maybe either personally or that you've seen online or heard told when people go to orphanages and they bring out the children and those children know that somebody might be coming to take them home. And so what do they ask those kids to do? To perform. Because they just want to be accepted and find a home. And you might think that James is saying that God would have us think that we are in an orphanage and if only we will prove ourselves by loving our neighbor that maybe he'll take us home. That's not what James is saying. James is saying God has already brought you home in his son. Now let's discover what it means to live in this home and to grow into the fullness of living in his household. And that's why you have to look sharply at what James is really saying in this passage about being judged. So speak and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. Now, wait a minute. Law as a liberation. That's as Orwellian as it might sound. Um, You attorneys in the room, usually laws are out to constrain freedom, right? Uh, They're out to limit our way, uh, so I'm told. Not the law of liberty that comes in Jesus. Jesus brings us a way that is a freedom. Because at this cross, do you know what happened? Jesus brings us mercy at the expense of the judgment that he bore. And in that is our freedom. Jesus at that cross is treated like a transgressor so that we might be treated as those who had fulfilled the law to perfection in that is our freedom. And that happens at the cross. And that cross is the good news that he brings to us. And therefore in him and at that cross, we have been freed. Freed from the guilt of sin. Freed from the fear of death. But most notably, as it relates to this passage, we are freed from thinking that we have to follow Jesus in his steps without help from his spirit. We're freed from that thought. Because in giving us himself, he gives us his spirit. And it is his spirit that enables us to realize there is something to giving ourselves away. In this liberty that is purchased by his blood, we have a motivation to follow as he did. But we also and moreover have the power with which we might be motivated. You will not be taken in by those who have power, prestige, and privilege, and all of those things. And you will not be put off that have none of those things on their CV when you realize what's been done for you in him and how you've been freed. It's how it works. It's the logic of his love. Some of you know the name Sinclair Ferguson. He's a a pastor, a teacher, um, a seminary professor. He's from Scotland. I had the privilege of working on the same staff with him once when I was in Dallas. Um, I have 
a very funny story. My wife once asked Sinclair Ferguson, what do, uh, what do Scotsmen wear under their kilt? And uh, he said, dear Christy, it's not proper to ask a Scotsman what he wears under his kilt. And so we learned something important that day. But Sinclair Ferguson tells the story of when he was a pastor in Scotland and how there was a, a couple in his church who had just been named as the Scots people of the year by, by the government. Uh, they ran a rescue mission. They, they took in the homeless, the destitute, um, those that had just gotten out of prison, whatever the halfway house, they would, they would take for them and it would care for them and they would love them. And, and as they interviewed the couple, uh, the wife was really called out for her her blessing and love and compassion. And she says, oh, oh, believe me, my husband is the, is the, is the greater um, recipient of this, of this recognition, as humble as he is, because he can stand next to the most offensive stench that a person has and not flinch. At which her husband humbly demurs and says, I'm not special. The only reason I do that is because I know Jesus stood next to my spiritual stench and he didn't flinch. That's the gospel. Do you not see the logic of living with his law and his liberty in mind? Those who realize what they've been given, they are the freest to give. Those who recognize that they've got nothing to prove and nothing to earn from God. They're just the ones that really don't fixate on whether or not we're okay. They just sort of walk in his way. In Christ, God shows his love by bringing us to himself. But God continues that act of love by then continually seeking to make us more like himself. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not done with you once he makes you his own. And that's why, to close the loop on what Paul also says there in 2 Corinthians, after the part about appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, he says this, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What controls them? What compels them? Not that they might gain the love of Jesus, but that they already have it. They will appear, but they will appear to attest to the way in which they have the love of God in Christ. That's the gospel. And that's what compels them to act with freedom and liberty and impartiality in this life. We act justly because of mercy. That's what everyday faith is. Not that, but this. So what then? Where does that go? It may in part have something to do with missional communities. The potluck is right after this service over in the education building. But it does start with this. To live impartially, to avoid partiality, and to speak and act in the way that he does, it means at first becoming like a child. Because when you're a kid, None of those distinctions that we sort of develop between elementary school, middle school, and high school, none of those really matter. They're not even on our radar. We are as children. 
And we think of each other just as the same people in the room. And that's why we, we think in those terms, and that's why we resonate so much with, with that Presbyterian dude in the red sweater who sang this at the end of every episode when he said, it's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. It's you I like, the way you are right now, the way down deep inside you, not the things that hide you, not your toys. They're just beside you. We must become as children. And, and you know, you hear that and you go, wasn't that sweet? And, you know, I watched that when I was eight, but I'm 47 now. Really? No, really. Yeah, you may have heard that in the nursery, but that is theologically profound. And it's, you think it's a given But just roll back the tape on history and realize that is a rather remarkable way of thinking. And that Presbyterian minister in the red sweater reminded us of that. We must become his children. And then if we're to commune with Jesus, we must go to where he is. And Rowan Williams, who was once the Archbishop of Canterbury, said, if you want to be where Jesus is, Being where Jesus is means being in the company of people whose company Jesus seeks and keeps. Jesus chose the company of the excluded, the disreputable, the wretched, the self-hating, the poor, the diseased. So that's where you're going to find yourself. We go there. We find him there. Because they are us. Those of whom... He speaks is us, just in different ways. And so we run to where Jesus is. And if I might then conclude with one really specific application, how do you apply this? Nominate people for our session and diaconate who manifest this heart. I know there are a lot of other qualities that we might see in someone that might make them fit for that role or that office. I would encourage you to think and pray well about who do you think, who have you seen act in this impartial way? Those, those are who we need. Those are who I need. Those are who you need. And then, as we seek him in that way, then maybe we will escape that ingrained habit of sorting people into categories in the way high school classes do in ways that make no sense. And then, Maybe there will be a quality of community among us that even those who have been absent from church for 15 years might still find beautiful. Let's pray for that. So, Father, what now? It's a straightforward word, and we're all praying together, so you will hear us even if you heard just one of us. Where do we go now? Surely there are things underway in our midst that, that try to honor what you have said to us in this passage, but, but we are asking and wondering. Surely you have come to bring us to yourself, but surely as you make us new, you, it's not without disrupting a lot of sacred things to us that are not as sacred as we think they are. So would you lead us and grant us the courage to find ways forward in what it means to act as you do in love, in rest, in hope. Amen.